Hello and welcome to Podcast of the Lincoln Geek. I am Podcast the General, the Dan, Dan, Dan Face. I have many names. I am also joined by my friend and regular co-host, George. Yes, the rules lawyer himself, Giorgio. Giorgio, or Ballsy George. <laughs> Ballsy <laughs> George, as of the other night, yes. <laughs> as of, I won't go into it because it's not our spotlight for this game, but we played Letters from White Chapel. George played the most confident and ballsy Jack the Ripper I've ever seen. Unfortunately, he was caught quite quickly. Sorry, George. A story for another time. Sorry for another time. What are we reviewing today, Dan? It's it's my turn, and I picked another game that was one of my very first kind of modern games. I've already partially said the title, so it's a Game of Thrones, the board game. It's a kind of a war game. It's based on the novels, not the show, though it did kind of come out when the show was about. I think they kind of tried to cash in on that a little bit, and I, I really like it. I don't have that many war games. This is one of the only ones I've actually got. I know you've played it yourself as well, haven't you, Mr. G? I've only really played it digitally with their uh, dedicated app from Asmodee, which is okay. <laughs> it has its yes. glitches at times. Yes, it's one of the glitchiest, buggiest inter- adaptations of a game I've ever seen. <laughs> well, but to be fair, the actual game is fine. It's just that their online servers are so pedantic and prone to desyncing. Cosmetically, it looks great. It's got nice music. It's got all everything. It's certainly a lot easier than setting up the game physically to play it. When it works, it actually works quite well because it's quick and there's no need to put tokens all over the board. Exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, a summary of the Game of Thrones board game. It's obviously based on the novels by uh, George R. R. Martin. The unfinished novels, but that's another topic. You play as one of the six main houses vying for control of Restoros. It's a fictional country that's very loosely based on the UK, basically. And you have the various uh, nefarious factions winning either through honourable combat or less honourable combat. Damn those Greyjoys. God, I hate the Greyjoys so much in the story and in the game. Yeah. <laughs> you win the game by controlling a number of castles. But what makes this game a little bit different than the most kind of area control war games I think you've got to consider like supply you've got to have enough food at some point you're going to hit your troops cap so you don't really have like the uh, snowballing problem you have in a lot of the war games where like one person just has seemingly infinite troops one thing you can do to counter a huge army is cut off their food supply and if the right card comes up they'll have to disband your enemy can't feed their troops so they disband <laughs> I haven't seen many games do that, and I just think it's a really nice little touch. You move your guys around the map, you play like cards, which are the main characters from the show, and they add like strength to your armies. There's loads of like varying factors, like different units for better attacking certain things, like siege engines, which are really good in attacking castles. Absolutely useless elsewhere. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely useless elsewhere. They give you uh, four points, just for comparison's sake, to attack a castle. The standard footman gives you like one point. Knights give you two. Siege engines give you four if you're attacking a castle, but if you're not attacking with a castle with them, they they are very useless. They're just set dressing. They're scenery. (laughs) They give you zero points. They automatically die if you fail at an attack, which is also a lovely little feature of the, oh dear, we we failed our attack. We have to run away and leave our siege engines behind. Yeah, exactly. It's a nice uh, thematic touch there. I mean, if you actually lose a battle, by default, they don't always die. Uh, They've just run away. (laughs) Yeah, I, Uh, I do like that. I think that's, again, one of those key features that's good difference from other war games where actually killing off troops is quite difficult. It gives the defeated army a chance to regroup. You're not necessarily wiped out instantly, which I think is, is nice. There are some cards you can play that have like little sword symbols which guarantee a casualty, but then you can counter that. If you think you're going to lose, you can play a card that have like little thought symbols which kind of nullify a sword. If your troops run away, they lie down flat on their side because they're not an organised army anymore, but if anyone attacks them again, they're worth zero points. But if they lose that fight, then they die completely. But assuming they're left alone, they run back home and they lie down and they have a rest. 
the next turn they'll all stand back up again. What else is worth noting about this game that makes it a bit different from other war games? And it kind of fits the theme of the story. Is there are various kind of influence tracks? Good old influence tracks. I have my favourite track. Which... I'm going to guess it's the Raven. Don't be the Raven, No, right? no. no. It's really? not my favourite track. I, ah. The Throne is my favourite track. The Throne? Well, it's all about the yeah, Iron so, Throne, George. So for everyone, there are the, the three tracks. There's the Iron Throne, which controls player order. There's the Fiefdoms, which is a tiebreaker for combat if you end up with the same power levels and you have the king's court or the raven as dan's called it basically controls how many special actions you do and you also get to spy on the uh wild little threat which we haven't covered yet which i find quite useful yeah the top level of each one has a special bonus the iron throne winner of the iron throne gets to break all future ties yes any non-combat related ties bidding wars if they bid the same amount that kind of thing so it can be quite useful which is why i like it also allows you to save power because you don't have to overbid on everything it's pretty good but i'd argue it's better late game than it is early game yes because it determines who goes first and if you're going first everyone knows how to react to you you know me dan i like playing my late game martels yes you are the <laughs> you're the, the long game master so the reward for being top of the fiefdoms is that you get the valerian sword which allows you to use it once per turn where you can add one to your combat strength to potentially help boost your combat strength or if you're playing with the optional extra for more random combat you can use it to draw another random combat tile which yes can be double-edged sword ha 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 when you did that <laughs> yeah i mean we should probably briefly cover how combat works just for people that don't know the game it's kind of unique as in there's no dice so it is possible you can kind of predict if you know what cards your opponent has exactly how much they can play into this fight the troops are all open on the field so you know if someone's playing like three points of troops whatever people's used cards from their hand are all face up and you've only got like seven each you've got reasonable knowledge of predicting who's going to win this fight unless they play some wild card the bonus for being on top of the fiefdoms track is being able to draw a new card if you don't like the one you got but it's one off isn't it one per round one per round, or say, or using it as its plus one combat strength, which I often find is more useful anyway. So. And uh, the last track? The last influence track is your King's Court, uh, which determines how many special actions you have, called the Ravens. There's one for each type of action, just better versions of the actions. So there's like marches, which give you plus one combat strength, special consolidation actions, which allow you to muster more troops, particularly good defense or supporting actions, that, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then the reward for being at the top of that track is that you get control of the Ravens, which allows you to either look at the top card of the Wildlings deck. Ooh, which we haven't covered yet, but we will. Or once all the orders have been revealed, you get to replace one of your orders. Which is a very underrated ability, really. How the turn order works is everyone has like a set number of order tokens. They may have some better than others, depending on how high they are on the uh, King's Court, as you said. But everyone puts their order tokens face down. So you'll have people like, you could have your neighbour next to you and you don't know if they're going to try and march and attack you or if they're just going to stay there and defend or gain power you could be really paranoid they're going to attack you so you put up your shields but if you are the raven holder once everyone has turned their tokens face up you can see that your enemy perhaps were not attacking you perhaps they were gathering power instead so in that case you can use your uh, raven token 
just to change your defense icon, because it's useless, into a raid icon, and then you steal the power from your neighbor. Or vice versa, if they, oh, they've played defense. I don't need my defense here. Time for me to gain some power. <laughs> it's the Game of Thrones way. Backstabbing all the way. So you're all fighting against each other, you're spending your power tokens just to hold land or perhaps win placements on these influence tracks because it's kind of a bidding system, like I bid five power and if someone bids six power they'll be higher up than me. As we're doing this, there's this massive threat building up north of the wall and occasionally they just keep attacking. So if you spent all of your armies and power fighting each other, you're just going to be steamrolled by these wildlings from north of the wall up there, which I think just kind of fits the theme really well. Yeah, definitely. Everyone's squabbling over something that ultimately doesn't matter. When... The best part, I think, about the wildlings is if you lose, there's some horrible consequences. There is, yes. And the, the worst loser, i.e. the person who put the least amount of bidding in, has a really bad consequence, but if wildlings win the showdown then everyone will have something bad happen. But if you beat the wildlings, the, the person who's bid the most gets a reward. However, if you bid the most and you still, and overall, everyone, no one else put in, so you, perhaps you don't beat the total wildling strength, then basically you've just spent all that power for nothing and the bad thing happens to everyone too. This is, again, why I like controlling the Iron Throne, because this yeah. is where, where the tie-breaking can be absolutely brilliant, because you just go, I don't care what happens here. So I'm just going to bid nothing because I know that someone else can't bid anything and I can just make sure that the bad thing happens to them. Yeah, the, the really bad thing. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm tied to zero. You know, you can have the, bad, the really bad thing. I'll just have the regular bad thing. And watch as everyone else wastes their power. And this is why I like Raven. It's probably my favourite token to have to the King's Court track. The Wildlings attack it. They have like their own separate deck with the Raven. You, instead of swapping one of your own order tokens, you could look and see what kind of attack and what benefits are and what the penalties are if you win or lose against the wildlings so quite often you can figure out if it's actually oh that's not a big deal i'm not going to bid zero just make it but you can bluff it up and make people spend as much as you want the other thing is the westeros phase at the beginning yeah there are loads of things that can happen in there like supplies yeah uh, where various events will happen that will force you to change your position on the supply track allow you to muster more troops or they can restrict the type of actions that you can play this turn which is quite cool i've always found this very uh close game but uh, I, I do feel like there are some balance issues with certain player counts which I think are probably important to talk about. It does have a bit of a weakness if you're not playing with the full six players because the people on the south of the island they've got very lightly defended areas to the south so they can just ignore the other players just walk south and get an easy victory which I think is a bit of a design flaw which I think they try and fix in the expansion packs. The expansion packs are set at different points in the story. I mean I'm not going to ruin the story for anyone that is currently watching the show or reading the books but you have like the Baratheon faction that they were the ones that were a bit overpowered because they start in the middle of Westeros and if players 5 and 6 aren't on the game if they're not there then they just can walk south on a post but with the expansions they're kind of they're spread out a bit more and you've got other factions that are surrounding them so they don't have such an easy time of that basically they cut out the first couple of turns they make it where everyone's kind of getting ready to fight and it just, you just start the game with everyone right at each other's uh, doorsteps. So it actually makes for a, a shorter game as well. One of the mini expansions, I think it's a Feast of the Crows, provides you with an alternate win condition instead of claiming castles, because it's normally first player to get seven castles instantly wins the game. And that's where the uh, betrayals happen. Like you can be allied with someone all the way through the game, but as soon as you're on six castles, their castles look a lot more tempting if they're undefended. <laughs> <laughs> you can just sweep in there and steal the victory. But with a Feast for Crows, you've got objectives instead, and they give you victory points when you achieve them. And some of these can be like capture someone else's home turf or uh, 
um, hold a certain location or have the biggest army for a certain number of turns. Bit of variation, bit of flavour to the game. So I mean that's the basic overview of the game, but just a very fun world game. I've always really liked it. It's always been very tense. I do acknowledge there are balance problems, but once you have the full six, good time for everyone. <laughs> Even with the full six, there are still a couple of factions which are Starks who, because of the geography, have a natural adv- theoretical advantage because they have no rear for people to Yes, they are completely to the north. Their weakness really is they, they're quite poor lands, which kind of fits the story. They have quite low supply. Yeah. And they have quite an aggressive Greyjoy just to the south. They don't really start with easy access to a navy either. I think others probably do. But no, I acknowledge that Stark are quite powerful, especially in the base game, because everyone else typically has is surrounded by other factions, while Stark, they've only got one front to worry about. The other one is, as you say, it's the Greyjoys. They have some of the most ridiculous and powerful cards available. Balon Greyjoy, who just basically says, I don't care what you've played, I win. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Lannister tend to have a very hard time. They do a lot better in the story than they do in the game. They're sort uh, of stuck in the middle of the board. With they've got a very aggressive Greyjoy. Very aggressive neighbour to the north who naturally wants to get into the same spaces that you do. Yeah. And you've not really got any good lands to expand to in the other directions. You inevitably end up in a bitter war with the Greyjoys unless you can have a nice friendly relationship with them. Very unlike the show, but you know. Very unlike the show. Uh, I mean, weirdly, I find that Stark and Lannister are are very good allies in the board game. (laughs) Yes. You really need to team up with uh, each other to stop Greyjoy before it becomes a problem. Yeah, at the very beginning of the game, they're very powerful militarily. Whilst they lack the ability to do special actions because they have the sword, they just march over you. They can do a lot of damage before you get to build up your forces. We've talked about it for a while now, but just to quickly, I mean, the, the theme of the game is great. It's one of the better themes of the war games I've seen, really. And just like the character abilities, they really fit the theme of the house, like the Starks are, or the honourable types, and they're just kind of straightforward combat, really. Greyjoys, like you said, they're just horrible, but they get a lot of bonuses at sea. House Martell, they are a fantastic late-game house. They get more powerful as the game goes on. Yeah, they've got a lot of manipulation abilities. Yeah, so that, in a nutshell, is a Game of Thrones. One of my fave war games. You I will reckon. spend hours playing it. It is a big game, especially at full play account. It does take quite a while to play. Uh, that's what I really recommend the mini expansions that reduce the play time by kind of skipping out all the in- initial exploration. I find that kind of cuts out about an hour of game time, which is pretty good. But you're still left with a game that will last you like an hour, two hours. Which is your favourite house then, though, of the seven available? I like all of them. I, I like the challenge of Lannister just because they have such a hard time with it. If I had to pick a house to play, if I wanted an easier match, I'd probably pick Stark just because you're um, surrounded by enemies. You can just take your time. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I have to say, my favourite is probably House Tyrell. Yeah, they're good too. I know that they have a relatively poor position on the board, but once you get going with them, they can start steamrolling the game quite easily. Yes, yes, and they have some fun abilities as well. I just love the, I believe it's Sir Loras Tyrell ability card, where if you have a successful march... You basically get to re-implement that token from the new sector of control, so you just big cavalry charge, you just go through. I mainly play this digitally these days. I think the latest patch is relatively stable. Relatively, yeah. 
relatively stable. I haven't had any crashes on it yet. Oh, we did have one quick comment from Pete. Pete says, I've only played it a few times with you, Dan. That's me. I like what I've played. It's the kind of game where you need to be aggressive, uh, which is a play style I tend to shy away from, or at least into my better understanding of the game's mechanics. I do like the concept and the theming as a whole, and it's a game I'd like to play again, especially once they've patched the digital version. Yeah, very good points there, Pete. I would advise you play this game with people that aren't easily offended because you do really need to be aggressive to win. You can have temporary alliances with lots of different houses and factions, but if you see a window to steal some castles, you recommend it just to go for it because it is literally the first person to claim seven castles instantly wins. So I could be really nice and playing best mates with Greyjoy or whatever, and then they leave their capital undefended. I'm going to take it because <laughs> they could get me the win. Whenever I see someone as approaching five or six castles, I think it's important that you discuss this with the players because you do really need to watch out for them. And that this is where the kind of the shifting alliances kind of come into play here. Yeah, realistically, I think once people are on four castles, you've got to look at them shady. Five yeah. is worrying. Six I mean, is they, they need hammering hard. Yeah, I mean, if someone is on five or six, then I would flag list to everyone saying we have to stop them. Uh, and you, you, everyone just kind of unites against this one person because if they get a single castle, game over. <laughs> well, I think we've pretty much covered it. Everyone chat. Thank you, Mr. George. No worries. Thank you, Mr. Dan. Thank you for listening to the podcast of A Lincoln Geek. Check out our website, doalg.co.uk or dialinkinggeek.com if you like typing long things to make sure you can find everything all in one place. Until next time, get your geek on. Thanks for listening, everyone, and everyone, keep gaming. Bye. Bye. Bye.